Hey, so how's it going? It's going. You know, you know, I feel that way down deep. I don't know what it is. I think maybe, well, first of all, it's part of it's I haven't been to therapy in two weeks. And part of it is like whatever sadness came to live with me during the snowpocalypse, it did not leave. Yes, I feel that. And the other part of it is that because of the snowpocalypse, when my power was cycling on for 15 minutes and then off for eight hours, um, I trained my body that like if the power came on, I would wake up if I was sleeping so I could charge things and, you know, turn on the heaters and do all that stuff. Right. Then, then all that, you know, now everything's working again. And so now when I fall asleep, anytime there's a noise, I wake up. Right. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God, the power's on. And then I'm like, Oh wait, it's been on. (laughs) (laughs) Like literally I told you, I've, I've been so exhausted. And so this afternoon I skipped lunch and I was, I was working and, and this afternoon at like three o'clock, I was like, I need to lay down. So I laid down for like, I was like, I set my alarm for like 30 minutes. I had drifted off to sleep and I jolted awake so hard that like t- it took 10 minutes for my heart rate to come back down. Wow. It was crazy. Very scary. So yeah, that's what I'm dealing with. It's great fun. Cheers. So much fun. And and you got to watch a depressing ass movie. So like you've had a real fun week. You know, I um, know this case and I forgot how fucked up it is. Yeah. Well, can I help restore your faith in humanity first? Absolutely, please. Okay, so I don't know if it was last episode. At some point I told you about one of my students who um asked first of all, if he was, um, defense or prostitution in our, um, in our case. And then he also told Mm -hmm. me he was going to be a jury when he grows up. I mean, same. I mean, it's what we we all aspire to be. Uh, (laughs) Jury and or podcaster who solves murder. Right. So, um, so, uh, to to counterbalance that, today I was teaching a poem called Sugarcane, um, and it I is... I know what poem you're talking about. Do you? Mm-hmm. Nice. So, um, you know, it's all symbolic. It Sugarcane represents the slaves who worked the sugarcane fields in Louisiana, and mm-hmm. um, so we're really getting down into the thick of it and talking about like how the, um, the, the poet is using these really beautiful symbols and metaphors to get her point across. And then, mm-hmm. um, at one point she says that, um, you know, the sugarcane didn't plant itself there that we did that. And I was explaining how like she wasn't taking personal responsibility and that she didn't personally put slaves on a um, plantation but she was saying that we as as a society had were culpable by by allowing it to happen that if you were not actively anti-slavery then you were culpable and so just like if you're not actively we just talked about this on our patreon if you're not anti-racist then you are racist there is no exactly Exactly. And so um, one of my students who is typically has very conservative views um, just says- I think it's so funny because your kids are in middle school. Right. 
And it's like, you don't have conservative views. Your parents do. Right. Um, but then they, they walk around and I remember being in middle school, they walk around and they all think they all know what they're talking about. They don't have a goddamn clue. <laughs> right. Well, and this particular kid is a lot of fun. He, he usually is the most secure in what he believes. Like he has usually done more research, but it is That's by and large what his parents believe. He just kind of regurgitates, sure. but he knows why they believe that. And so, um, he is the one, I think I told you about this, who, when he asked me why immigration was such a big issue, because, um, shouldn't we not want people to come over here illegally? And I was able to convince him wholeheartedly to be like super liberal on it. And then immediately flipped and went completely conservative on him. And he was like, oh, this is real complicated. And I was like, yeah, this is real mm -hmm. complicated. Um, so Can I have to scold the cat real quick. Hold stay out of my stuff i got new masks and she's bringing them to me oh good well she just wants you to be safe i did cough earlier so she's afraid that uh, i'm going to transmit something through this microphone and several hundred miles to you um so in any case this particular kid just stops and he goes oh you mean like in the killing of george floyd last summer the police officers who who didn't stop it were also responsible for the murder of George Floyd. And I just stopped and I was like, yes, exactly like that. Now, can you teach everybody else? <laughs> like, I love how you had the head and the arm going there for right? a second. Well, I, needed the I almost wish world. this was a visual medium. <laughs> I am recording. So mm -hmm. maybe we'll just pop this on Instagram for this week. <laughs> no. No. Oh, so, yeah, that's great. Yes. Just it was one of the it's been a long time since I felt like I'm doing good as a teacher. Like mm -hmm. it's very disheartening this year. But that was one of those times that I'm like, I'm doing it, I'm making a difference. I should get a Junie cam and just post the weird shit that she does in here while we record. Absolutely. <laughs> She's a mess. So yeah, we had um, you know this, I was dog sitting for a friend, but Juniper was displaced by the dog. The dog who is the nicest dog and the most calm dog I've ever seen in my life. He's almost comatose. And Juniper was a psycho. Yes, did I about you. Did I dream this or hadn't Juniper lived with that dog previously? Not that dog. She'd lived with a dog. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but yeah, oh, my arm hey. is recovering. I see that. Um, I meant to mention, mm -hmm. cause I forgot mm -hmm. this is lifetime sentence and uh -huh. I'm Paul. I'm Aaron. You got really serious there for a second. I know. <laughs> okay. I have to, is there a way for me to turn off my schmeary? Uh, yes, but I don't remember how I did it. Probably somewhere in the settings. Oh System preferences. It's driving me nuts. Here we go. Okay, yeah. So go into System Preferences, click her name and then there's a button that says listen for hey Shmiri on airpods and turn that off oh thank you you're welcome 
<laughs> okay. So um, we have now turned into a tech podcast where I answer your hard hitting as technology questions. More just my stupid technology questions because I'm an idiot. Okay. So uh, this week, wow, this movie is dark. And I tried to make it funny and I don't think it's funny. So I hope you enjoyed last week. <laughs> I, um, I know of this case and I forgot how fucked up it is. And it is. And it's a real case. I did not have to write anything no, on this one. It is a very, a very real case. Um, this week I watched Happy Face Killer. It stars David Arquette. I love him. As Keith Jesperson. Wait, he is he problematic? Should I not love him? I don't know if he I don't know if he'll Oh be no, I love him. If he's okay. not if he is problematic, I don't know. As okay, of good. right now, um, March first, two thousand twenty one at eight thirty four PM, I do not know of him being problematic. <laughs> okay, good. Because I, I always feel not. bad. I'm like I love him. And then somebody's like, did you not know that he dot, dot, dot? So I'm like, oh shit. Mm -hmm. I've just had to start keeping my opinions to myself. Yeah. You'll know him from Never Been Kissed, the Scream movies, um, like being married to Courtney Cox. I know him <laughs> from Medium. He played, um, so his sister, you know, was the lead of Medium and mm -hmm. he played her brother in the last season. Well, that's a stretch. Yeah. Well, what's funny is there had been a different actor playing her brother for the other seasons. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and then it stars Gloria Rubin. She plays the FBI detective Melinda. She is from, she was in Lincoln. Um, Mr. Robot, Falling Skies, Admission. So yeah, she's in quite a bit of stuff. Okay. Um, Daryl Shuttlesworth, he plays the sheriff. And he was in Fargo. That's like the main thing he's in. And he's okay. also a dad in one of these Hallmark slash Lifetime movies because I recognize that lady. Christmas in Evergreen. Ah, oh, there you go. Okay. Bells are ringing. The last one. And he's also in Christmas in Evergreen. Tidings of Joy. Wow, there you go. And Christmas in Evergreen, Letters to Santa. <laughs> he's in all, okay, he's just Evergreen. And Christmas in Evergreen. <laughs> so yeah, he plays the, I think he plays the cafe owner. I'm not sure. So yeah, that's who we have. Um, yep, okay. The movie opens with the FBI rating Jesperson's house. Um, there's blood everywhere. Um, lady FBI, who turns out to be Melinda, but I don't know this yet, um, goes down to the basement and doesn't run away screaming because she's a badass bitch and I'm not. Because I'd have been like, no, <laughs> nope, that's not going to happen. Hard pass. Um, this guy literally left bloody handprints everywhere. Do you remind no, me of that meme? Yeah, no, thank you. That meme when it's like uh, me watching Forensic Files on my fifth mozzarella stick. Like, <laughs> what a dumb bitch. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Um, downstairs, she finds um, 
a dead body tied up it's all bloody it has a happy face drawn in blood over it and we flash back to two years earlier david arquette is driving an 18 wheeler in his visor he has a picture of his family and a postcard of a mountie which is weird but okay well why why not he goes into the dispatch and the lady yells keith jesperson you're my favorite and i was like is he though obvious everybody's favorite um he tells her today is the big day the mounties will be calling because he's going to become a mountie even though he's not canadian so she flirts with him a little and then he leaves and goes to a cafe where he meets his brother his brother says he's on his way to their dad's house and keith has a flashback of being abused as a child so keith heads home but no one's there he opens a beer and goes to the mail and the call from the Mounties comes in. Unfortunately, because he has an injury to his shoulder, he's unable to become a Mountie. Okay. Keith is very upset by this development. He thanks the guy and he hangs up. He then sits down at the table where he finds a letter from his wife saying that she's leaving him. Keith is having a bad day. Um, yeah, that, that sounds like a pretty shitty day. And we cut to Lady FBI, a.k.a. Melinda. She's at Target practice being snarky to an FBI agent who is kind of harassing her. He asks her to go to dinner to, quote, talk about a new job. And she calls him out for possible sexual harassment. And he tells her that if she's not going, if she's not going to go out with him, she should at least go out with someone. Stay in your lane. Thank you. Um, so Keith goes out to eat with a lady that totally empathizes with his pain or whatever. He thanks her for talking to him and he goes home and watches old home movies. Then he calls his wife slash ex-wife repeatedly and finally leaves the message apologizing and saying he loves her and the kids. He smashes a beer can. Oh no, he asks if he can come see them and to call him back and let him know. Then he hangs up and smashes a beer can against the wall and draws a smiley face on the fogged up window and then leaves his house. Um, that's not foreboding at all. He goes to a bar and pours his heart out to a bartender who tells him to um, get back on the horse. So he approaches a pretty girl. She introduces herself as Sissy. I'm sorry. They told the guy who was rejected from the Mounties to get back on the horse. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> they just hey. took that salt and rubbed it directly into the wound. Mm -hmm. She introduces herself as Sissy and he tells her his name is Keith, which means of the forest. And she says, oh, like bears? Yes. And he's like, sure, whatever. And then she's like, I love bears. And then we cut to them fooling around. And I was like, oh, Jesus. Okay. She teases him a little too much and sticks too hard to like the bear thing. It's like her kink or something. And I'm not going to kink shame, but he didn't like it. So um, he gets all like weird and he's like, I'm sorry, I had a bad day. And then she sees the Mountie hat on his nightstand and puts it on. He starts having a flat. Oh, God so he's starting to get mad 
he tells her not to put on the hat. And then he starts having a flashback of himself as a child in which he kills a pigeon with a hammer. Uh, I would like to not watch that scene. Um, I just wrote, I don't like birds, but this movie is canceled. So um, finally, like he snaps out of it and he goes, you know what, sissy, you talk too much. And then he kills her. Ooh, hard pass. So he then washes his hands, covers her up, and then cleans up the house. He drives the body over the state line and dumps it. He steals a scrap of the denim from her jeans and then leaves. Back at his house, he makes a home video of himself, quote unquote, protecting his reputation. So some cheesy reporter doesn't get it all wrong later. Like he knows he's going to get caught. Um, he says he's been misunderstood his whole life and sometimes he gets urges and he finally acted on him and it was exciting and just no, ew, like no. So meanwhile, the FBI finds the body because he didn't hide it very well. He drew a happy face on her stomach. So they assigned Melinda to the case because Keith drove the body over state lines. It's an FBI case. Melinda's boss like gives her the case and he's like, now go solve it. And I'm like, what else do you think she's going to do? Go on a date with it, the case. Go on a date with the case because she needs to go, she needs to go get laid. That's what, she, that's what she was told. She's gonna go fuck the case. <laughs> um, Keith's diner lady friend is helping him clean out his house. I, I'm like, is he moving? Like, what's happening? I don't know. But she finds a bracelet on the floor that belonged to Sissy. Keith covers it up and saying it belonged to his ex-wife, and then he pretends to cry in the bathroom. So he goes on like a trip or in his truck and spots a nice-looking lady at the truck stop. He picks her up and we cut to him dumping her body. So um, she's unidentified at the time of this film. I'm not sure about how, about now. So what they did is, so every time he would commit a murder or meet someone new, they would put her name like on the screen with a happy face next to it. Okay. I don't like the happy face next to her name. I feel like that's a little like, I, I feel like that's a little insensitive. So the screen just says Jane Doe for this girl okay. or woman. I'm sorry. So Melinda heads down to the local police office and the sheriff is unimpressed with her having to be on the case. And he grills her about her experience. He basically tells her he's going to act like a gigantic douche this whole time. But Melinda is a bad bitch as previously discussed and is completely unfazed. They go to see the body and the sheriff proudly explains that they have three clues. He says clues. Did was there a great Dane in the car with him? <laughs> no, but I just wrote if this were Blues Clues, we would have it figured out by now. <laughs> blues could do, we can too. I mean, Blues Clues has th you get three clues and then you figure it out. We just figured out Blues Clues, we just figured out Blues Clues, we just figured out Blues Clues because we're really smart. Sorry, um. Have and you seen so the now, TikToks of people pissed off that they're emails and not letters now? No. Yeah, because they rebooted Blue's Clues. and they're Get a like, hobby. Right? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're fucking old now. Yeah. So now it's Melinda's turn to be unimpressed with him and his clues. Um, 
Kate's lady friend bakes him a really nice looking chocolate cake. <laughs> and they talk about how his about his divorce and how he's holding up. She gets up to get forks and instead they hook up. So yay. Um, he goes to the truck stop sometime later and runs into two guys he knows after seeing they found Sissy's body. A woman comes in and asks if he still has that stupid postcard of Dudley Do-Right up in his truck. She tells them all that she has a new boyfriend and she's going out on the road with him and that he's super, like he's so much better in bed than Keith. And this was the most disturbing scene in this movie. Who is she telling this to? Keith and his two friends at the truck stop. Oh, okay. So while this is happening, Keith flashes back to his childhood in which he puts a kitten in a microwave and turns it on. Um, yeah, let's not do that anymore. Like I could have done without that. Yeah. I don't, I don't need that spelled out for me. I really don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Keith, like, Oh, I wrote, I'm going to need some special time with my therapist on that one. Um, so Keith sidles up to her and he goes, oh yeah, I remember you. You're the one that always needs a flea collar. And I was like, sick burn. <laughs> um, so FBI Melinda, oh no, sorry. Cut to him giving another video confession about how when people make fun of him, he sees red. And if he doesn't get the respect he's due, things go downhill really fast. Meanwhile, FBI Melinda goes to the bar and asks if, if the bartender knows Sissy. At first, he says no. And she tells him that he, she can either arrest him for obstruction of justice or he can tell her the truth. So he tells her that Sissy used to come in. But the last time she was there, she left with some guy. Back outside the truck stop, Keith's lady friend calls him while she's, while he's also trying to pick up who will become his next victim, Candy Smith, who has a baby with her. No. Back at the morgue, Sissy's mother identifies her and then she says, well, it was just a matter of time. Now I won't have to worry about her anymore. And I was like, oh my God. No. It's so sad. Um, later um, at the police station, a random lady comes into the police station and says she knows who killed Sissy. She says it was her and her boyfriend. And I just wrote, O-M-G-G-G-G-G-G-G. I forgot about this. Yeah. So they arrest Bud Skinner and the movie is over. Just kidding. Uh, Melinda finds some rope, duct tape, and a book about how to leave an abusive ex-boyfriend at the scene. And I guess that's it. Case closed. Done. The end. Back on the road, Candy and Keith finish having sex and she asks for money. He offers her $20 and to get the fuck out of his truck. She says she's going to call the cops and say that she was raped. And then she calls Keith a loser. So he snaps and starts to choke her. The baby starts crying. Um, so he snaps out of it though and yells at her to leave. So she picks up the baby and gets the fuck out of there, you know, like she should. Yeah. So she survives. Um, 
Good. Okay. At another truck stop, Keith sees the news of the arrest in Sissy's case, and this really unnerves him. So he goes to the bathroom, you know, like you do, and writes a confession on the wall, signing it with a happy face. Yeah. Okay, so this leads me to a very important question. It's one I posed in college. So did I ever tell you that I know first of all, you're going to be shocked when I tell you this, if I hadn't already, mm-hmm. did I ever tell you that I had an opinion column in my college newspaper? I know you're so shocked. No, you didn't, but that yeah, I I'm found a way so to have my opinions published every week in mm-hmm. a college newspaper. Um, yeah. But one of my favorite columns I ever wrote opened with the question I have, st- I'm still asking myself, mm-hmm. who the fuck walks into a bathroom with a Sharpie in their pocket? Like, I've never managed to do this. And then second of all, if I managed to, like, what would I write on a bathroom wall? Because they're disgusting and I don't actually want to touch anything in a public bathroom. Well, apparently you'll write about how you murdered Sissy. It wasn't those other two people and you stole her jeans. Or the zipper from her jeans. Thank you. When I finally achieve my dream of making it into a bathroom with a Sharpie, I'll text you and ask what I should write. Okay. You can just help me draft my bathroom confessional. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, goodness. So Keith drives to see his ex-wife and kids. Um, He brings presents. And so his ex lets him see the kids for a few minutes, which is really interesting because I know from the podcast on this case that I listened to a couple years ago, his daughter, like he was not that estranged from his kids, but they don't focus a lot on his kids or any time spent with them in this movie. Back at the police station, Melinda is interviewing Dolores because shockingly, this story does not up and she doesn't believe it. She begs Dolores to recant her statement, but she refuses. Keith, meanwhile, is ranting to the camera about Dolores and her false confession. And why would you make a tape? It's like the guy with the scrapbook. Right? Oh, God. Um, So Keith goes back home and he goes to see... um, his lady friend at the bar. Meanwhile, someone brings Melinda a photo of the truck stop confession. So Keith tells his lady friend that he's been thinking about her and he really wants her to spend more time at his place because he feels a lot better when she's there. And if you have to use your girlfriend to hide your murderous rage, maybe don't. Maybe go to therapy instead. Talk space. I don't know. That just sounds expensive and time consuming. So is murder, I guess. Like... Um, so Melinda goes to the DA to try to get the charges between against Bud and Dolores thrown out since it's obviously wasn't them but the DA doubles down and he's like I can just tell when someone's guilty and I was like well if that's the case you should be the DA everywhere Um, but it's not the case because they actually didn't do it so um, he tells her that he's going to need real evidence to consider her request um, an assistant comes in at that very moment and hands the DA Bud's uh, polygraph, which he failed. Shocker. As we know, this means absolutely nothing because polygraphs are not admissible in court. But okay. Back on the road, a lady is hitchhiking and Keith sees her. Her name is Souther. So- 
Oh my God. Her name is Summer Northern. <laughs> I almost said Southern Northern. I'm down with, look, that sounds like Kanye West's child. So like at this mm-hmm. point, you might be right. Um, we immediately cut to Keith dumping her body behind a log. Um, Melinda and the sheriff find the body pretty quickly. They also find a note that Keith wrote in lipstick on the log that says, quote, I killed Sissy and I did this one too. Maybe you'll start to believe I'm still out here. Keith goes to meet his lady friend to tell her all about the last few weeks um, have been some of the best of his life and he's falling in love with her. She says she loves him too. She was just too afraid to say it first. He proposes and she says, yes. True love. Yeah. They're going to get married as soon as his divorce is finalized, which is how you know it's real love. Yep. Uh, Another story comes out about Sissy. Bud and Dolores come on the TV. So Keith flips out again about how they have it all wrong. He starts writing on a legal pad about how he's two different people and he likes killing people. And he killed Summer Northern too. He sends the letter to the DA. Later that night, Keith and his lady friend are getting it on, but he starts to have murder flashbacks, so he totally freaks out. Um, back at the sheriff's office, Melinda is looking at crime scene photos. She tells the office lady a sad story about how her sister was murdered after she became an agent, and the case was never solved. Um, the DA brings his letters to her, but still doesn't think they have the wrong guy because he's a fucking idiot. Um Bud decides to plead out and accepts 15 years in prison um, for a murder he didn't commit. So this is all over now. Um, Keith sees a story about himself now dubbed the happy face killer on the news and gets excited. Oh God. Um, So Aaron looks sick. So this is the part where I tell you that um, it's just... The next 45 minutes were filled with bunnies frolicking in the field. Um, and then it goes to the ending Chiron that says the happy face killer um, jumped off of a cliff where he hit his head 33 times on rocks on the way down and was eaten by three sharks that played tug of war with his body. Um, in the parking lot, he meets Becky Sue Bailings. Back at the station, Melinda gets a letter from Keith saying that he killed Sissy and he feels he's being treated wrong for not getting credit for it. So Melinda goes back to her map with the string and figures out that the murderer is a truck driver. Back on the side of the, I mean, I am going to be sick. Oh my God. Back on the side of the road. Keith has Becky Sue Bailings chained up under his truck which he um, then gets into and drives away. I was excited. Do you want me to just tell the truth on this part and you can just get past it? Please. Um, mm-hmm. Chained to the truck, drags the body, cut to next scene. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, God. Um, his fiance calls to talk about maybe having their honeymoon in Tahoe. Um, at the next truck stop, he finds the lady from earlier, the one that said he was bad in bed. Okay. And um, she is like, um, hey, I can totally go with you as long as you're not the happy face killer. And he looks at her and he says, darling, do I look like the happy face killer? And the answer is yes. Yes, you do. Um, 
So Melinda is interviewing Candy Smith, the one who got away earlier, and talking about how he tried to strangle her. Melinda asks if Candy is willing to press assault charges against him, and she says she is. Keith and Taffy, the girl from the truck stop, have sex in a motel. Afterwards, she tells him he's the best she's ever had, and a creepy version of the song Happy Together starts playing in the background. Not a fan. Keith tells her that's not what she said last time. And she says that she's never insulted him. Um, She senses things are starting to go badly. And she's like, I'm going to get a cab. But he stands up and he's like, no, you won't. Um, Then he backhands her and strangles her with a phone cord. Afterward, this was so bizarre. Afterward, Keith looks at himself in the mirror and sees a Mountie. You know how Mounties are known for... um, strangling people with phone cords and killing animals um back in his little confessional video he talks about abusing animals as a child and how that's supposed to be one of the signs that you're a serial killer but he doesn't see it that way he just enjoyed the fear in their eyes as he watched them die he says it's not that much different killing an animal and killing a person So they find Taffy's body. Um, Keith gets brought in for questioning. Melinda asks him about Sissy and he says, no, he doesn't know her. She asks him about Summer and Taffy and he says he doesn't know them. She asks about Candy and Keith calls her a quote. Oh, he, she asked him about Candy and like how she's accused him of assault. And he calls her a quote, lot lizard whore. No, uh uh-uh. Hmm, sir, somebody needs to tie you up to a truck. I'm sorry, that, no. Um, Finally, Melinda shows him the letter and asks if he recognizes it. He says no, and she accuses him of being the happy face killer. Keith asks if he is under arrest, and she says no. He says he didn't write the letter, and he's sorry he can't be of more help, and then he leaves. At a truck stop, Keith is in the bathroom washing his face and hears sirens, but when he walks outside, no one is there. Um, Back in his confessional, he starts railing against Melinda and how she ruined him because she made him nervous. He says she's just, quote, one more worthless bitch messing up his life. Melinda goes and interviews Keith's ex-wife, and she tells the sad, sad story of Keith's childhood and says she doesn't believe he could ever hurt someone. She says, quote, if you ask me, his problem with women is he likes them too much. Over at Keith's house, he and his lady friend are planning their wedding. Um, Melinda, meanwhile, questions Keith's brother, who says Keith got the worst of the abuse from their dad. He says he thinks Keith always had this extra bit of rage to him, and he thinks he was born like that. Um, Another confessional video. Now Keith would like everyone to know that they're not special or smart. Um, They're either the wolf or the sheep. He teaches a master class on how to dump a body and how to choose a victim. And he needs a Xanax real bad. Out on the road, he continues to be paranoid. Melinda goes to the dispatcher's office um, and Keith actually calls while she's there. What a coincidence. He's asking his boss for more runs. His boss is like, "Mm, super busy, bye, and hangs up. (laughs) Um, 
So Keith just keeps driving. And of course, every single radio station is reporting on him and he's starting to come unhinged. Um, Keith goes home and, and his lady friend is mad because he never get, he's never around. He doesn't answer the phone anymore. Keith says he's sorry, but she keeps going on about how stressed she, she is. He gets all pissy about how he's trying, about how he's just trying to be, or just trying to make a living. And the dispatcher is the one that tells him where to go and what to do. So really this is all his dispatcher's fault. And she's like, you're right. And she goes to hug him, but he starts having murder flashbacks. So he doesn't sh hug her back. She asks him what's wrong. And he just looks at her and he says, don't be like that. And then he says he's starving and starts yelling about how there's no food in the house. So his fiance is like, hey, we should postpone the wedding. Back at the confessional, Keith is asking why it is that all women cause trouble and then gets up and says, you know what? You don't want to see this. And the camera flashes on her tied up and then it goes black. Well, at least they spared um, us from that. Yeah. Cut to Keith washing his bloody hands in the sink. The sheriff's office gets a call because lady friend, AKA Diane Lofton has been reported missing. And guess what? She's engaged to Keith Jesperson, their main suspect. Keith is at home addressing his confession tape to his brother. He hears sirens in the distance and this time they are real. Um, 9,000 police officers surround his house and we are back in the beginning scene. Melinda goes through the house, finds Diane's body. Um, Keith got away before they got there though. He drops the tape in his brother's mailbox and then gets back in his truck. He calls his boss again asking for more runs. Um, Melinda briefs everyone saying that the dispatcher is going to direct Keith to a location and they're going to bring him in. So Keith calls the dispatcher and they banter on the phone and then Keith hangs up on him. He pulls over and just starts shooting a random gun in the air because he's lost his fucking mind. Um, uh, so the dispatcher guy calls Keith back and tells him to go for a pickup. Keith looks at himself in the rim of his tire and sees the Mountie again so he could see a dress to go pick up whatever. Um, meanwhile, Keith's poor brother is checking the mail and he watches the tape he finds in there. Keith's video is very self-serving, talks about how he's killed eight people, assaulted more, and he hasn't really learned anything from it. So, Oh, good. Um, okay. Great. So Keith pulls up to the place to pick up his load, i.e. get arrested, and everything seems legit to him. So he gets out of the truck and they arrest him. He puts his hands behind his head and they bring him in. He's like, I didn't kill, like, she puts him under arrest for killing Diane. And he's like, I didn't kill her. And then she's like, Melinda says, I know you're the happy face killer. And he says, that's ridiculous. And they take him away. As they're leading him away, he turns around and he tells Melinda, he's real sorry. They never had any time together alone. No. Fuck. Um, Melinda back at the police station gets in her car to leave and go back home. The sheriff and the office lady who were so mean to her when she first got there, give her a mug from the office and the sheriff comes out to shake her hand for a job well done. Um, in the passenger seat is an envelope from, um, one of her colleagues at the FBI. He's been looking into her sister's case and has new information for her for when she gets back in the office. We cut to Keith in prison who is looking in the mirror now he's a Mountie on a horse. And he says, quote, you know what? I would have made a hell of a Mountie. Oh, well, their loss. And then he rides his horse away. 
And the ending Chiron is, quote, Bud Skinner and Dolores Parnicki were released from, were released from prison after the conviction of G Keith Jesperson. Keith Hunter Jesperson confessed to the murders of eight women and claimed he had killed over 160, which he later recanted. Jesperson is serving multiple life sentences in the Oregon State Penitentiary. He will be over 125 years old before he is eligible for parole. Oh my God. Great. Um, it was great. I fucking hate it. Same. All right. So as I warned you, I only have eight pages of notes. So I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as so possible. Uh-huh. Um, oh, my God. So my um, notes are from um, NewYorkDailyNews.com. I read an article called Justice Story, Six Smiley Face Sealed Killer's Fate um, by Mara Bovson. And that was written August 30th, 2020. So it's actually a pretty recent article. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, Wikipedia, of course, Murderpedia. And then I will reference another article at the end, but I don't want to give it away until I get down there. Okay. So first off, I do want to say, if you're a member of our Patreon, you, you may remember that on January 12th, 2020, I did an episode on the Smiley Face Murders. These names are strikingly similar, but they are not the same case. No. So the smiley face murders are an unproven theory with some possible credibility, but there's no hard proof to bit back them to back them up that they are in fact related murders. The happy mm -hmm. face killer is a moniker given to a serial killer who murdered at least eight women in the early 1990s, possibly more. Um, so and I just wanted to guilty there. Like yeah. there is no question about his guilt. Right. And so I just wanted to clear that up if there was any confusion because um, the names, like I said, are strikingly similar. Um, and so I remember when this David Arquette movie came out, I was prepared for it to be about the smiley face murders. And then it was about the happy face. Oh, yeah. killer. And I was like, Oh, this is not the same thing that I thought it was going to be. like." <laughs> oh my God. I thought, I thought I had seen this movie before and maybe I watched it and I just don't remember how you just put up a block. it was. This movie, like, I mean, you know, I'm not big on like content warning, trigger warnings, whatever. Big fat trigger warning in front of this one. Yeah, absolutely. Like just animal abuse, like implied animal abuse, like the, the dragging thing, like literally makes me want to throw up. So just even on, saying that out loud. So, yeah. So on January 22nd, 1990, a cyclist was riding along a highway near Portland, Oregon, when they saw a body lying on an embankment. The victim had been strangled with a rope still tied around her neck. Her bra was pulled up to expose her breasts. Her pants were bunched down around her ankles. An autopsy revealed the woman had been sexually assaulted. The victim was identified through sketches broadcast in the media as 23-year-old Tanya Bennett, um, and was last seen alive by her parents a week before her body was found. So the night before her, like the night before her body was found, January 21st, 
Um, Tanya had been out drinking at a local bar and a bartender even recalled seeing her chatting with some other patrons at the bar and playing pool with a couple of like young guys. Um, and then she just kind of disappeared from the bar. Nobody knows what happened. You know, like nobody can track when she left. She was just gone at some point. Um, so detectives, immediately started searching bars and truck stops in the area um, where Bennett was known to spend a lot of her time. Um, And in one cafe in the area, employees recalled a frequent customer named John Sosnovsky boasting that he had murdered a woman he met in a bar. Um, So a waitress called the police and said he was laughing. He thought it was a big joke. Um, so Sosnovsky was already on probation for drunk driving and driving with a suspended license. Um, mm-hmm. He was a notorious drunk whose girlfriend, Laverne um, Pavlinak. Can we pause for one second? Sure. Sorry, I have to pee. And we're back. Okay, so um, so Sosnovsky had this girlfriend, Laverne Pavlinak, who Murderpedia said, quote, had a habit of reporting him to the police on phony charges every time they quarreled. And I was like, I don't, I don't know that we call that a, a habit. Like, it's not like a, a fun game that we play. Well, also like, is he not beating her? Cause then like reporting him for a crime when he's beating her is not a habit. It's just. Right. So that's, that's exactly what's going on. Um, so, um, eight months before the murder in the spring of 1989, she had telephoned the FBI and falsely accused John of robbing banks. And so this time when she called and he was cleared by like federal police, she repeated the accusation to local police about the, that he was involved in this murder. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, um, he was pulled in or she was pulled in for questioning. She accused her husband of Tanya Bennett's murder and police obtained based on this um, accusation, a search warrant of the couple's home. Um, None of Bennett's missing personal effects were found, which is what the police were hoping for, but they did find an envelope addressed to Sosnovsky with T Bennett, a good piece written on the back. Um, and Sosnovsky denied killing Tanya or writing the message. So Laverne, meanwhile, starts changing her story like radically. So first she said that John had boasted of the murder, spilling just enough details that she was convinced of his guilt. But then when she gives her second statement to police, she admitted that she watched him rape and kill Tanya um, on the night of January 21st. Um, And so then in this confession or in this um, statement, they deemed it a confession and it was enough for authorities to um, charge Sosnovsky with murder and Laverne was indicted for aiding in the crime. Okay. Um, And so. Do you know how fucking miserable your life has to be? Oh, yeah. I mean. Oh, yeah. Um, So, and then immediately there were problems with the story. Um, Most glaringly, police had several witnesses who reported seeing Tanya Bennett at a bar in Grisham, like including that bartender I told you about earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, 
this bar was 25 miles from the restaurant where Sosnovsky had allegedly met her. Like, where, according to um, Laverne's story, they had picked Tanya up. Um, Tanya had been playing pool, many witnesses said, um, with two men who neither of them met, neither of them were John Sosnovsky. They never could identify the two men she was playing with, but neither one of them were John Sosnovsky. And to the best of the witnesses of uh, memory, neither one of them were the actual um, culprit either. So, um, however, none of this made any difference to the jurors who tried Laverne Pavlinak in early 1991. She was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison for her role in the crime. Sosnovsky still maintained his innocence, but um, he was unnerved by Laverne's conviction. So he cut a deal with the state, pleading no contest to felony murder and kidnapping, and accepted a life sentence with parole eligibility after 15 years. Um, so then the cops were like patting themselves on the back case closed. They did it. Yay. Um, they like super didn't. Right. So they like aggressively did not do it. Right. So in January, while Laverne was on trial, a message was found written on a men's room wall at a Greyhound bus depot in Livingston, Montana. And it read, quote, I killed Tanya Bennett, January 21st, 1990 in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her and loved it. I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. Two people took the blame and I'm free. And it was signed with a smiley face. Um, mm -hmm. Also, he misspelled the victim's name. Yeah. I mean, what do you expect? A few days he later, her, so. a few days later in a truck stop men's room in another place in Oregon, mm -hmm. Umatilla, there's That's no way that is correct. Nailed it. Um, a second message was found, quote, I killed Tanya Bennett in Portland. Two people got the blame so I can kill again. And like the first, this was also signed with a smiley face because he was in fact a fucking asshole. Yep. So detectives in Portland theorized that some unknown friend of Sosnovsky's wrote the graffiti in an effort to spring John from prison, um, but the author was untraceable. And so like small newspapers like local news reported on these notes appearing but it never made the national headlines or anything um so it never really made it back to anybody of merit that these notes had appeared at all so sure. then, so then in 1994 the Portland Oregonian, um, a newspaper, received a letter in the same awkward handwriting as the writing found on the bathroom walls, signed again with a smiley face. This time, the author claimed a total of six victims, including five more in Oregon and one in California. I feel bad, but I will not turn myself in. I'm not stupid, the letter said. And I mean, then it he, went. He doesn't feel bad. Right. And then it went on to say, quote, in a lot of opinions, I should be killed and I feel I deserve it. My responsibility is mine and God will be my judge when I die. I am telling you this because I will be 
responsible blow because he can't spell worth a fuck. I mean, for these spelling crimes, is hard. And no one else. It all started when I wondered what it would be like to kill someone, and I found out what a nightmare it has been. I mean, can I just say, I've been alive for a long time. I've never wondered that. Never. Not once. I can't say that I've never wanted that, but I've never wanted it to, to the point that I wanted to like solve it. Like, you know, like I wonder what goat cheese tastes like. So I tried goat cheese, but like, I, I've goat never cheese wanted is delicious. Uh-huh. I've never wanted what killing somebody was like so much that I wanted to then complete it to like, see if it was everything I expected and more. Yeah. Um, so this was oh I mentioned that did it do so then in um so on March eleventh, nineteen ninety-five. Oh, here we go. Okay. Um so because of this letter that went to the Oregonian, Phil Stanford, who was the um reporter who received the letter, would be the reporter to coin the nickname the happy face killer. Um, but there were no did a clues, bad job. Right. There were no blues clues within this letter as to who it could be. We um, don't have any blues clues. We don't have any blues clues. We don't have any blues clues because we're really dumb. <laughs> so on March 11th, 1995, the You're body of, welcome. The body of 41-year-old Julie Ann Winningham was found on a Washington State road. She had been strangled. An investigation led to Julie to one of Julianne's boyfriends, 40-year-old Keith Hunter Jesperson, a six foot six inch tall truck driver from Selah, Washington. Um so I think it's funny that they cast David Arquette because he is not like short, extraordinarily tall by no. any means. <laughs> so Keith Hunter Jesperson was born April 6, 1955 to Les and Gladys Jesperson. In a... huh? Oh, no, it's not. I was going to say that's the same year my mom was born, but no, she was born in 54. Oh. Um, in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. And if I ever why wanted, he wanted to be a Mountie, I guess so. Um, he was the middle child. He has two, had two brothers and two sisters. Um, and he reported that his father was a domineering alcoholic um, and that his paternal grandfather was also violent. Um, Les Jesperson, to his credit, denied being an abusive parent. However, while investigating for a book that he wrote on Jesperson, um, author Jack Olson was actually able to confirm much of the claimed abuse with other family members. So, yeah, um, that actually none of the family denied that Keith was abused, and they actually kind of all agreed that he took the bulk of the abuse. Um, right. And that is kind of a very interesting conversation that um, that I think is missed a lot. That often often in abusive families one of these siblings is abused more than the others and i and i find that very sad and very interesting and i 
I do not want to personally do the research on that because I would just cry the whole time, but I would love a psychologist or psychiatrist to do research on that and tell me if they can come to a reason as to why that is. I'm sure there's studies out there. I don't know if anybody's come to the reason why, but I'm sure there are studies out there. Right. Um, so in his younger years, Jesperson was given less attention than his siblings. He was treated dis- differently than the rest of his family. After they moved to Washington, he had trouble fitting in and making friends because of his large size. And of course, his brothers did not help. They nicknamed him Igor or Ig for short. Um, and this name That's stuck. Mean. Uh-huh. This name stuck with him throughout his school years. So like then the kids at school all called him Ig or Igor. Um, also, and, dude, you're six six. You should be just you. Any girl should want to go out with you. You don't even have to be attractive in the face because you know what? She can't even see your face because you're so tall. <laughs> oh man! Aaron, There's a whole be- thing. Do I like him or is he just tall for a reason? You should go into like fixing people's Tinder bios because like, I think you've cracked the code. <laughs> um, I've never even seen so, a Tinder bio. <laughs> I, like I tell you regularly, I don't even know which way you're supposed to swipe. Like I just say swipe the good way. Like that's, that's what I give people. Um, let me see. I skipped a whole paragraph. Um, so because of this, he was very shy and reserved. Um, he kept to himself much of the time and he started to get into trouble for behaving badly, sometimes violently. And so this would lead to him being severely punished by his father. Um, this included beatings, sometimes with a belt in front of others. Um, and in one case, he received an electric shock from his father. So at a very early age, as young as five, Jesperson um, began capturing and torturing animals. Um, He enjoyed watching animals kill each other, as well as the feeling he got when he killed animals, he said. Um, This, of course, continued when he got older. I'm not going to go into too many details because I will just cry into the microphone, and that is not cute. Um, Also, I just don't, I don't want (laughs) to... I've, right. I've seen enough. I don't want to know. Right. So he he claims that his father was proud of him for his animal abuse. And at this point, like, I don't even know that I can argue because his dad was so fucked up. Like, a weird thing to be proud that, of but that might also, check out parents are totally weird so um so in the years following jesperson said he often thought about what it would be like to do the same to a human um so then that desire actually manifested in two attempted murders when he was a, a kid um so the first happened when he was around 10 years old He was friends with this boy named Martin and they would often get into trouble together. So Jesperson claimed that he was punished many times for things that Martin had done, but blamed on Jesperson. And Mm -hmm. so this led Jesperson to attack Martin violently beating him until his father had to pull him off. 
Um, Jesus. And he later claimed that he his intention was to kill Martin. God. And so then almost like a year to the day later, Jesperson was swimming in a lake when another boy held him underwater until he blacked out. Mm -hmm. So later that summer at a public pool, Jesperson found that boy and tried to drown him at the public pool by holding his head under the water. And the lifeguard had to jump in and break up the situation. So then um, Jesperson, according to Jesperson's testimony, he was raped at the age of 14 um and at the uh so he graduated high school in 1973 um but he did not attend college because his father did not believe he was smart enough to do it um good grief yeah so like you know real recipe for success here and you and i say this all the time like none of these things add together to um excuse murder or to say like it's okay that you murder and like people grow up in shitty situations all the time and don't murder but like totally Mm -hmm. these are all pretty high indicators that somebody's going to come out at least needing therapy at the at the least (laughs) yeah probably so um so even though he never had um like any relationships in high school um he entered this very serious relationship right after graduation um and two years later he um two years later he married um his wife he was 20 he married his wife rose hucky and the couple had three children two daughters and one Mm -hmm. son um and so he began to work as a truck driver to support the family okay Several years later, Rose began to suspect that Jesperson was having affairs when strange women would begin to call their house. Um, And so... Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. So tension in the marriage increased, and after 14 years, while Jesperson was on the road, Rose packed up her and the children's belongings and drove to Spokane, Washington, to live with her parents. Um, The oldest child, Melissa, was 10 years old at the time. Um, yes. And we will talk about Melissa again later. Yes. So um, Jesperson continued to spend time with the children when he was in town and the couple officially divorced in 1990. Okay. So at the age of 35, standing between six foot six and six foot eight, they're kind God. of varying reports. That is just so tall. So there is a, a kid i still claim a kid i know he is 19 years old now but um th- th- there's a kid that calls me dad he is six foot eight his name is buds who i randomly matched with playing playstation several years ago now um uh-huh. And he and I just kind of hit it off in this match. We So what happened was we were really good together. His friends and I were really good as a team. So we played mm-hmm. for like eight hours solid that day. Sarah was working a night shift and I didn't go to sleep until she got home at four the next morning, you know, because um, I'm super responsible. Sure. And this is before we had a kid. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, over Christmas break, he was driving through and I told you all this, he stayed at our house, right? Um, so he was that kid that I'd never met before, but he stayed at our house. And he yeah. is so 
stinking tall. He is like, I just like kept looking up to look into his face. And then our little boy gave him a hug. And when he hugged him, his head didn't even come all the way up to Bud's knee. It was the cutest thing. It was so sweet. Stop. <laughs> so um, anyway, there's my sweet story to break up all of this awful. So at the age of 35, standing between 6'6 six, six and 6'8 six, and weighing around 240 pounds, Jesperson began working toward the goal of being a Royal Canadian mounted policeman. Um, but which like all I can think of is Dudley Do-Right riding that horse backwards. Yep. And okay, so I'm going to show my ignorance here. Mm-hmm. In, in America... If you are mounted patrol or a mounted policeman, you are only on horseback. Is that true for the Canadian mounted police also? Or is the mounted or are the Mounties there like national police service yeah. just in general? So the, the Mounties are there now. It stands for, uh, it's RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's, that's their whole police force. Okay. Um, I didn't know if they were still strictly horseback or if that just meant their whole national police team so because i'm just picturing whatever i was just picturing whatever poor horse had to carry this giant man they have to pull out one of the budweiser clydesdale right they're like sir you can't work for us because you're too big for the horses so um he has this injury that he suffers during training and it ends his dream um so he starts working again as an interstate truck driver um and relocates to Cheney, Washington. Um, and then he real like he comes to the realization, like we all do when we're in a job that we didn't plan, um, that this job affords him the opportunity to kill without being suspected. You know, we we all come oh, to that realization at some point. My job doesn't do that. I would totally get caught if I killed my coworkers or people that I saw like I was gonna say you're currently really working from home, so like you would definitely get caught and I juniper like could take her, you it's gonna be the kitty and yeah she could totally take <laughs> me she would kill me first no questions asked she might kill me first anyway just for funsies <laughs> so um so his first known victim was tanya bennett the story that i opened with mm-hmm. um he introduced himself to bennett at a bar and invited her to his to the house that he was renting he brought her home with the idea of um, having sex with her. And when Bennett refused, he proceeded to, to beat her. Um, and then he panicked, afraid that she would report him to the police. So he, quote, put his fist in her mouth and killed her. So then he established his alibi by going back out for some drinks and making sure to be seen by several people and like having awkward conversations with people at the bar so that he had like an airtight alibi that people had seen him and then he this went- is why i'm not a killer because like i couldn't even force myself to have an awkward conversation for an <laughs> alibi I couldn't force myself to have an awkward conversation just to have a conversation with people. Like, First of all, I couldn't be a killer because I don't want to be that close to another human being anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
after he has these awkward conversations with, I like to believe complete strangers. And I like to believe that at this point, they're like 22 year old sorority girls who are out like celebrating the end of finals. And he's the old dude trying to come up and chat with them. Yeah. And now they like, now they just write stories on Reddit about that one time they almost got murdered. Right. Exactly. Um, So then he went back to his house and retrieved um, Tanya's body and her belongings and disposed of them. And then he went back on the road the next day to work. Um, The body, the body was found a few days later and there were, or then I, so I think she was murdered on the 21st and her body was found the 23rd. Um, But so some of the, some of the things said she was found the 22nd and some said the 23rd. And so the timeline gets a little weird for me. I know it's only within a day of each other, but it still gets hard for me. Anyway. Yeah, no. yeah. So. Um, Shouldn't be that hard. It's like. A, it, it, right. This should all be just documented pretty easily. <laughs> um, so there were three suspects and 666 leads. The devil number. Ooh. I have to send you this TikTok that Lydia sent me about the devil. Okay. Right. Um, so it was two and a half years after his first kill when Jesperson killed a kid again, um, at least like a verified murder. On August 30th, 1992, the still unidentified to my knowledge body of a woman he raped and strangled was found near Blythe, California. He says the Jane Doe's name was Claudia... Um, let's make sure. Okay. Um, he said that her name was Claudia. Um, a month later in Turlock, California, the body of Cynthia Lynn Rose was discovered. He claims that she was a sex worker who entered his truck at a truck stop while he slept. His fourth victim was another sex worker, Laurie Ann Pentland of Salem, Oregon. Her body was found in November of that year. According to Jefferson, Jesperson, she attempted to double the fee that she charged for the sex he had been engaged in with her. Um, so she threatened to call the police. So like you do, you he strangled her because that's the only answer, I guess. God, you know, it's almost like this fucking asshole thought that um, people weren't going to look for these women because they were sex workers. And while he was correct, that doesn't make it okay. Right. Um, So then it was more than six months before his next victim was found in June of 1993. Um, This was another identified woman that was, quote, a street person. And that is the thing that I think needs to be set on fire. Ew. Yeah. I kind of thought you said street person. Like she was a fan of Meryl Streep. And I was like, (laughs) you know what? I can get on board with that. Yes. Uh, but not, just, no, not the just, other thing. No, just that's a great canceled. big streeper. Just that's what we're all called now. Streepers. Um, I'm on board. We're all going to I'm a sporting be- event and we're going to make sure to whisper that we're streepers just so that the like security gets on high alert. <laughs> <laughs> so um, her body was found in Santanella, California. And he claimed her name was either Carla or Cindy, but he can't remember. Fuck you, dude. Uh Uh-huh. So police originally considered her death a drug overdose because 
um, drug overdoses and rape strangulations just look the exact same whenever you they are in really fact a do. sex worker and so police don't give a single fuck about you no like that's the truth they do they really do look the same god i hate so more, people more than one year later in september 1994 another jane doe was found in crestview florida jesperson claims that her name was suzanne um so you're right he it is clear that he was targeting these women who um who who existed off the radar um and who police didn't give it reminds me so much of the grim sleeper yes um the grim sleeper that yes because it's just it's marginalized women who the police are gonna be like oh well like you said oh well it must be a drug overdose she was raped and strangled looks exactly the same like i what the fuck yeah i hate that yeah um so Jesperson was, like I said, eventually arrested on March 30th, 1995 for the murder of his, um, his previous girlfriend, uh, Winningham. He had been questioned by the police a week before, um, but they had no grounds to arrest him after he refused to talk. In the days following, Jesperson decided that he was certainly going to be arrested, and after two failed suicide attempts he turned himself in hoping it would result <laughs> your eye roll i think i think they felt in china just now they were like "Ooh, aaron's pissed about something <laughs> I, i'm sorry I don't you, be a fucking uh, coward no i no not even that do not brutally murder people and then when you're gonna get caught you're like mm, i'm gonna i'm gonna die that's, by no that's what i mean like that's what i mean he was not willing to face the consequences of his own actions that's what i meant by don't be a fucking if you're coward. gonna be what? a fucked up killer then you gotta take you gotta take your licks when they come because that like, no yeah you also, made what your... is wrong with the pacific northwest <laughs> are y'all it's because they don't get enough sunshine God, like get a sad lamp like everybody else. <laughs> Jesus. I hate this guy. I forgot. I, I listened to the podcast like two years ago and then I promptly forgot about him because he's a worthless piece of shit. So he decided that after he could, after he, um, the two failed attempts that if he turned himself in, you can't in, even do that right. He, you can kill another person, but you can't kill yourself. That's fucked up. That if he turned himself in, he'd get some leniency for his sentencing. The fuck? Yeah. No, no. So no, while I reject all of this, I reject it all. I, I wasn't going to get drunk tonight, but here we are. Yep. So while in custody, um, he began revealing details of the killings um, and making claims about many others that he then recanted. So like at some point he was like, well, then there was mm, Timothy and they're like, dude, that's not a name. And he's like, and then there was Shakilda and they're like, are you just like pulling letters out of a Scrabble bag? <laughs> and, and he's like and then i'm pretty sure there were some twins to like 
to the point that he claimed he'd killed 185 people just like casually <laughs> like like this was grand theft auto and he was just driving his big rig truck down the interstate and it was lined with imaginary sex workers he was just running over and splatting like they were bugs on the interstate like i don't i don't know what he thought he you know so then he was like jk everybody everybody should respect sex workers but particularly if you are a person who partakes in that service you should take the normal respect you have for a human being and then quadruple it for that sex worker right she has to look at you i just and i mean him like the murderer gross disgusting right right just like a uh, eh. i'm so mad (laughs) so um yeah, so only the eight women killed in California, Florida, Nebraska, Oregon, Washington, and Wyoming have been confirmed. Um, so only eight. Right, out, out of the 185 that he confessed about. So then here's where it gets crazy because it was all just so sane at, up to this point. It, I mean, it was. So, I was like, man, this is super normal. Right. So when he turns himself in, um, they finally well first they're like well you didn't murder tanya bennett we already arrested and tried those people so like you can fuck all right off sir we already took care of that one we beat you to it ha 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 we went to happy hour and everything and so we solved that case so fast so then he like out scooby-doo them and led them to where he'd hidden tanya bennett's missing purse and yeah. I was like, oh, well, if you got the real killer, would would I know where this is? Dun, dun, dun. And he brought his own sound effects, I imagine. Um, he played a tape. Oh, shit. Dun, and he dun, had to flip dun. it over to the A side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I hate him. Um, so then they were like, they had to like radio and they were like, um, guys, uh, this, is a, this is a code 16. We fucked up. Uh, let them go. Let the cat and the mouse go. I repeat, we fucked up. Like, well, you know what's interesting is that, and I remember they covered. I think they covered this in the podcast. Is that even after he came forward and it was proven that he had murdered, it is very difficult to get a conviction over. It is so difficult that, like, even them being like, "Hey, this is the guy. This is the murderer." Like these people are not the murderer. This is the murderer. They were so like, yeah, but the, I mean, the, the trial was fair. So right. They had right. a really well, hard time getting out of prison. So like he confessed November 3rd, they were released from custody November 27th, but basically um, they had to, they had to agree that they just weren't going to come after the state and sue them for false yeah. imprisonment to be mm-hmm. able to get out. And, yeah. and like Laverne, I don't think agreed to that. I think Laverne fought it. I don't think John did because basically the state was like, well, John, you confessed to it. Remember when you made a plea deal? Because we said, if you made a plea deal, it'd be easier for you. Even though we told you that we didn't have any evidence to go off of, but we told you if you made a plea deal, it'd be easier for you. Like, Good God. 
Oh yeah. Also, well, the media reported that Jesperson wept tears of joy when Laverne and John were released for his crime, and I was like, "Oh fuck off!" Shove it up your ass, dude. Also, like our justice system is so very broken. Yes. Um, That's another podcast for a different time. But wow. So wow. So he starts reveling in his newfound celebrity. And he starts Dude, getting get wrecked. He starts getting letters to his jail cell and he responds. Even to hot, them, I don't know what he looks like. Not to my recollection. But he signs them love face. Thank XOXO face. Um I don't like that. <laughs> no. Um, okay like he's not unattractive but no he's not he's not like to me he's not a guy that i'd be like oh yeah like let's get it even though you killed someone i still want to fuck you like if john ham killed someone i'd be like "Eh." (laughs) it was just (laughs) date So, um, so then he's, he realizes that his confession of 185 murders, um, like suddenly, has like a, well, suddenly has a very hefty price tag because all of a sudden they're going to start piling on additional indictments and convictions on him. And he was like, wait, 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 no, 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 no. wait, hold up, hold up, hold up, wait, no, that's too many. That's too many. Hold on. You said I, you said I was going to be 3000 years old before I got out of jail. No, 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 no. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Listen, I was just kidding. There wasn't a, there wasn't a Shalangela. I just made that one up. You thought Shalangela was a real name. I just made that one up. You thought Tamothy was a real name. You know what? Here's the thing. The way white people name their kids now, (laughs) Shalangela and Tamothy are probably real names. I went to school with a girl named Tamothy. No. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Oh, man. So... He's like, this, he, they're twins named Peach and Pie. Those were fake. <laughs> Christ. So he starts trying to like, uh, like white people, white people should have rules on like what they can name their kid. Right. It's getting out of here. You know, like France has a list of names you can pick from. Like, I'm kind of down with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Well, what's his so- name? Tried to name his kid like a fucking math problem. I'm not trying to solve a math problem. <laughs> Talk to your kid, dude. <laughs> this is why I can't teach anymore because I'm afraid I'm going to have to teach. And then it's pronounced like Seth. Like, I don't even remember Elon Musk. What's his child's name? God, it's something ridiculous. It is. I follow this Instagram account called Los Feliz Daycare. And they, they always, they have, they get, it's like a fake twitter account and they give all the kids like really dumb names and it's like you know blah 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 pronounced whatever like, <laughs> and then they always they always do their age in weeks it's like 536 weeks like, <laughs> yes so in fact 
Oh, this article I was reading from was was a fairly like recent article to him being arrested. Um, and so like basically while they were writing this article, a new case had opened up in the middle of them doing research um, based on a the, the discovery of a woman's body um, of a rather of a woman's um, decomposed remains that had been found alongside an interstate in Nebraska. Um, so the problem that came out of it is that he just kept changing his, his list of confessions. He was like, I, it was 185 people. No, it was, it was 160 for sure. It was definitely 14. And then he would say things like, I killed 19 of those piles of garbage and left them on the, like, that's how he referred to all of his victims. He called them piles no, of garbage. No. Yep. Bad. Where's my spray, <laughs> spray bottle? <laughs> um, so then while all this, oh, so the case that came open during the, like, all of this going on was this um, body found in Nebraska. Um, a tattoo and x-rays identified the woman as 21-year-old Angela Subreeze. Um, she was an Oklahoma City native who had last been seen alive in Wyoming with Jesperson in January of 1995. So he admitted to killing her. Um, and then she's the one that he chained. And that's all I'm saying. No. Not. So then they were like, great, thanks for the confession. And then um, Wyoming was like, hey, we're going to... Um, we're going to need you to, um, we're going to indict him on capital charges. So like, so like, we're going to need him back here so we can like, cause like the no. death penalty sounds great right now. So like, if you I'm could just, not a, I'm just not a big fan of the death penalty. Right. But thinking about what that woman must have gone through makes me physically ill. Uh-huh. Well, they were like, so if you could just like ship him back here for a little bit, we we just we just want to talk. Just like put him in a talk, box. Yeah. You don't even have to poke holes in it. Just like send him back here. And he's like, Oh, did I say I killed Angela Supreze? No, I thought you said Shalangela again. That one Shalangela was real. It was I thought you said Shalangela Cubreeze, and that I did her. No, not Angela Supreze. Did I say Angela Supreze? No, not her. And I've never even heard of an Angela Supreze. That name sounds made up now shalangela like that i just that poor i can't oh my god so wyoming prosecutors did not buy his revised version which he did so his his new story was that he did in fact um no angela he picked her up they'd slept together and then he just dropped her off on the side of the road and left totally fine last time i saw her Right, exactly. Somebody else must have done those awful things. Um, and so they were like, mm, nah. And so um like that shit is straight out of like a Saw movie. Yeah, yeah. So so Wyoming and there's files- a case and, and it's not just this case because there's a case in Texas where um a man was dragged to death. It was a hate crime. And I can't even like I can't listen to stuff. No, it makes me physically sick. Yeah. Well, so then you're going to love this. Like, this is the most backwards. So they just walked into the room and shot him. 
no so and this is like, oops my gun went off my bad right no 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 so jesperson decides he's smarter than the entire legal system put together so oh, when, honey, no, when this plan doesn't work he's like i got this don't worry so he hears wyoming is like filing the extradition papers and he's like you can't actually take me to wyoming because I killed Bobby Crescenzi in 1992. Bobby Crescenzi um, had been, so Jack Crescenzi was Bobby, was married to Bobby Crescenzi. Um, so Jack had been guilt, found guilty of his wife's murder. Um, but so then Jesperson was like, no, 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 listen, I killed her. So you got to let, you got to let Jack, you might, my, my good friend, Jackie boy go just like you let John and Laverne go earlier. Um, and so you can't extradite me until all this is finished because we got to overturn his conviction. So police were like, cool, 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 cool. Hey, do you mind if we just talk to a few people? And so they just talked to Jesperson's old cellmate. And they were like, hey, we can shorten your time if you tell us what's up. And the cellmate was like, oh, no, I don't even fucking like that guy. So listen, um, I'm be I've been passing letters between Jack and Jesperson. Um, He's like Mariah Carey. He's never heard of her. Right. So basically, um, Jack Krasinski has been giving Keith details of the crime that only the murderer would know so that, um, and Keith was going to pay Jack $10,000. No, sorry. And Krasinski was going to pay Keith $10,000 that Keith could give to his children for this false confession. So Jack could get out. Yeah. Why do all these murderers have more money than me? Right. They've been, they've been stocking it up on those cards, like, and then selling No, they should just take all like, that money and give it to the normal people that don't kill people. Or to, like, like I the feel like I should get a stipend. Well, that too, but I should get a stipend for not killing people. I, yes, I support this. You could work in my job for a week and be like, yeah, you deserve that. I teach middle school. I know you, you too, <laughs> but you're quitting. So you don't count. Um, so, so explode exposure of this plot leads the authorities to then question his confession of Tanya Bennett's murder. Oh God. Which then still doesn't stop anything with Wyoming. So he still gets extradited mm -hmm. to, to Wyoming in 1997. Um, so then, then on the way to be extradited, he, the car just ran off the road and he died. Well, so then he, he starts bragging about how he's just going to tear the prosecution's case just completely apart. Um, because is he going to represent himself, please? Basically, yes. And here's what he's going to do is by he's going to confess to the murder again, but he's going to tell them this time that he actually killed Angela in Nebraska, not in Wyoming. So Wyoming can't kill him now. <laughs> mm, I'm going to err on the side that Wyoming can do whatever they want. So um, he did dump her body there. So, so then Wyoming is like, nah, bruh. 
like we're still we're still gonna go through with this because he was like so you can't even try me at all because it's like not even in your jurisdiction um and so wyoming was like that's that's not a thing so finally he copped another plea deal um so he got another life sentence instead of instead of capital punishment so um <laughs> he had like the ink had barely dried on that plea deal before he turned right around to the reporters who are like in the courtroom basically and was like um ladies and gentlemen of the media i would like to tell you that i lied about killing tanya bennett um i didn't actually kill her um that was my writing on the bathroom wall but like um that was actually with uh brown sharpie and everyone knows that anything written brown sharpie is not in fact fact so um that smiley face was not even actually happy it was just kind of um it was gassy and so you can't trust a gassy happy face so like i don't know why you all took it seriously bye and then he okay, walked away i'm just like, gonna i'm gonna come back to <laughs> the i the the fact that my main goal in life is to just to just bear the confidence of a not even mediocre white man right so he is eventually formally sentenced in four cases he's suspected of by authorities of at least four more um including one from 1994 in um okaloosa county florida which i didn't even hit on i don't think um he has there is already at the time of this article um intent to try him for a 1992 murder near blythe um it, I, but they're holding the cards on that one just in case he ever seems likely to win parole um so he's 125 years old so how is it going to be likely well you know white guys only have to serve like three blinks and do the chicken dance and they get to get out on parole now, if you were a black man and you had enough marijuana to get a cricket high, you might as well die in that jail cell. It's all fucked, Aaron. That's what I'm telling you here. I mean, we've already talked about this today about how fucked our justice yes. system is. Very, very So um, I mentioned earlier that Jesperson had three daughter, three children. His oldest daughter, Melissa, has gone on to speak a lot about growing up as the daughter of a serial killer. Um, and so the following are some excerpts from a column she wrote for BBC called My Evil Dad, Life as a Serial Killer's Daughter. This was published November 3rd, 2014. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And I will leave a link to this in our show notes so that if you want to read the whole column um but these are two um two of the big um things that i pulled from it that i really love she says let me tell you about the last time i saw my dad before he was sent to prison i was 15 years old when he showed up randomly at our house in spokane washington he and my mother were divorced and we just saw him occasionally when he fitted us in his job as a long distance truck driver on this particular day in autumn 1994, he asked me and my younger brother and sister if we wanted to go out for breakfast with him. We all hopped into his big truck, and which had a sleeper cab attached to it. My sister and I sat in the sleeper cab on top of the mattress, and my brother sat in the passenger seat. After we set off, my brother opened the glove compartment and found a pack of cigarettes. He was really shocked because smoking was a big no-no for my dad that had always been something he wanted to instill in us. 
And he said, oh, those are for my friends, for women that I pick up. My brother pulled a face like he didn't really believe him as if to say, dad, are you hiding something from us? Maybe you're a closet smoker. As we were turning the corner to my high school, a big roll of duct tape rolled out of the sleeping compartment, which struck me as pretty strange too. I thought, why does my dad have duct tape by his pillow? But I kind of brushed it off thinking, well, everything's in weird places because there's not a lot of space in here. My brother and sister had plans that morning, so we dropped them off, and it was just my dad and I that went to that went to a downtown diner. I loved my dad, but I didn't really enjoy being around him. He made me anxious. He never molested or beat any of us. It was just a feeling that something was building, seething beneath the surface. I had once tried to articulate it to a school counselor, but it didn't come out right. I mean, a lot of kids think their dad is weird. One of the things about my dad, which made me very uncomfortable as a young woman, was that he was very explicit about his sexual relationships. For example, he sometimes went into graphic detail about what it had been like sleeping with my mother. He would leer at women in public, make lewd remarks about them, and harass them. That morning in Denny's diner was no different. I remember him flirting horribly with the waitress while we sat in the window booth. It was during this meal, my dad said, not everything is what it appears to be, Missy. And I said, what do you mean, dad? I watched him wrestle with something internally. Then he said, you know, I have something to tell you and it's really important. There was a long silence before I asked him what it was. I can't tell you, sweetie. If I tell you, you will tell the police. I'm not what you think I am, Melissa. So that's how she opens the column. Um, and then... She also talks about, so she talks quite a bit about her life, obviously. Um, yeah. She talks about um, being in middle school and high school, being the daughter of a serial killer. She talks about how it affected relationships, especially romantic okay, relationships. Can you imagine, first of all, or you don't have to imagine because you went to middle school. Yeah. Take, take how fucking horrible middle school was and then just add the fact that your dad's a serial killer on top of it. Right. Um, so she's also been, she was in a, an episode of evil lives here, which is one of my favorite shows uh -huh. on ID. Yes. Um, and she is, God, this is going to sound so, so struck up, but I feel like a lot of times when they interview people for these shows, they are very marred by their experience and uh -huh. they're not as articulate as people yes. would want them to be and she is like she is right on so, it so that's the next thing i'm about to talk about so she says um the Which next makes thing her a really wonderful advocate for uh-huh families yeah she that's says, what i was getting at I was lucky enough to eventually find a wonderful man, get married, and have my own children. One day in May 2008, I watched my daughter excitedly jump down from her school bus, bursting with a question that she couldn't wait to ask me. That day in kindergarten, they had been learning about family units. Families? Oh, God. She had been told that everyone in the world has a mommy and a daddy. This was breaking news to her. Mommy, everyone has a daddy. Where's your daddy? I just froze. I thought, how do I explain this to her? She's so adorable. She's so sweet and precious. How do I tell her who her grandfather is? And in the end, I said, oh, he lives in Salem. That was the first thing that popped in my head. And it's the truth. He's in prison there serving consecutive life sentences. But I realized that unless I addressed the issue properly, my father's crimes would affect my daughter just as they had me. 
We look very alike, she and I. I had looked at I looked at her face and it was like a mirror to the past onto the little girl I had once been. That was the moment that changed everything. For years, I had been living and hiding, but that afternoon, the pain of living with secrets became greater than the pain of speaking out and telling the world who I really was. I wrote a memoir, Shattered Silence, and I started to give interviews to the media. After I appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show in 2009, I received hundreds of emails from family members of other serial killers thanking me for telling my story and for asking and asking for help and advice. I travel to see these people or speak to them on the phone. It's given my life meaning and direction. I've created a whole network of people like me, daughters, sons, siblings, parents, and grandparents of serial killers. So far, I've had direct contact with more than 300 people like this. We are an underground community. Recently, I was contacted by the mother of two girls whose father was a serial killer who had been all over the papers in Europe. One of these girls was so depressed she was thinking of suicide i asked my network to write letters to the girls and let them know it gets better in time um so she has started this like you said this wonderful advocacy group she speaks she speaks often about what it's like to be the daughter of a serial killer to um Mm. the repercussions of that the way it affects a family unit the way it affected her personally um she talks a lot about the importance of proper therapy um and you know she She and carrie carrie rawson who is the daughter of btk Uh uh-huh they both have been very like influential and to a lesser extent um as the mother of a killer um there is a book and i can't remember what it's called but it's written by one of the mothers of the shoot by the shooter by the mother of one of the shooters at columbine columbine yeah and it is heart shattering it is so sad um but you i i think people often forget that these murderers they often have families whose lives are irrevocably changed by their actions as well yeah 100 and of course fit but they are they're other they're victims of the murderer in a different way oh yeah people think of victims families they think of you know the families of the victims of the crime which i mean obviously but you don't think of the the murderer's family who are suffering just as much oh yeah um you know and it's like the episode we did when we got to talk to the incredible anna lebaron anna baron yes actually it's so funny somebody um in the, i think the tco group um they were talking about oh a documentary about um something i don't know and i said something oh because the four o'clock murders are coming out on oh Netflix. yeah yeah so we were talking about that and she was like man i wish they i wish they would do an interview with anna LeBaron. i was like oh actually i did an interview with anna LeBaron. so if you're listening hi um yeah but hey. yeah i was like hey like we actually interviewed her for our show like she's incredible and just i i just wrote she's such a delight because she is like she's she just is such a nice just- person um, and, and I don't so, think if I grew up in that way, I would be that nice of a person. No, and they all have, <laughs> all the people that you've mentioned, while they approach it all very differently, all have the same kind of strength and fortitude, and I see mm-hmm. it in them all. And so while everything in this was awful, I am so glad that I was able to end on a story of strength. 
And so if you would like to learn more about Melissa Moore and hear about her just incredible fortitude, um, like I said, I'll, I'll link this article in the show notes. And then as Aaron referenced, there was an amazing podcast that was produced by the podcast network, how stuff works. Mm -hmm. It's called happy Mm -hmm. face. It features interviews with her about her childhood and her father. It's Um, so good. The thing that I never get out of my mind she doesn't shy away from the heavy, like, Mm-mm. and the thing I never get out of my mind is she talks about going to stay with her dad, like for the summer or something. And she's like sleeping in the living room and there's a stain on the ceiling. And she's like, I mean, I can't say it was blood, but I can't say it wasn't right. And it's just, she, she has, she fully discloses like her, her hindsight is 2020 moments. Yeah which I find incredibly endearing because I can't imagine talking about any of that stuff is, is easy at all. Right. Um, and I would so have to have also, my therapist on like 24 hour call. Right. <laughs> um, also, as I mentioned in this excerpt, um, as she talked about in her excerpt, rather, um, she did write a memoir called shattered silence, the untold story of a serial killer's daughter. It was published in 2008. I have not read it, but it's got a 4.5 star rating on Amazon. So that's really promising. uh, Yeah. Uh, So I'm definitely going to look that up. But um, so that is the horrific murder of many unidentified victims of the happy face killer. Can I just say for everyone here, fuck Keith Jesperson. Yes all the way i think we can i think in this climate when people are having trouble agreeing on anything that's something we can all agree on yeah ted bundy wasn't hot keith jesperson is a piece of shit ted cruz is the worst yes hey what are you reading i am reading the gifts of imperfection by Brene brown i love Brene brown and I am reading, um, okay, I'm going to have to get the, it's a long title. Hold on. I got open my candle. I am reading The Girl and the Goddess, Stories and Poems of Divine Wisdom by Nikita oh, Gill. That sounds really great. I am on a big, big poetry kick and I'm also still reading Transcendent Kingdom um, and I just got my book of the month choices and I'm getting two and I'm really hoping I get them before I leave for my trip because I'm very excited about both what are you getting um The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner I've heard really great things about that it looks so good and uh Too Good to Be True by Carola Carola lovering okay i don't know anything about that it's a thriller it's a thriller so interesting yeah and i i need to do my book wrap up on my instagram so if you want to follow me on my instagram i never plug my personal instagram but since you asked it's dime.store.duchess yes please do what are you reading um so i i don't know if i was reading this last week or not um 50 words for rain did i mention this last week (laughs) so it is really good. So it starts out with a little girl. It's um, Japan, 1950. So right against the backdrop of the end of World War II. Um, mm-hmm. 
uh, a little girl has been dropped off at her grandparents' house. She's told to basically say, this is your name that your mother sent you. And um, obedience is the, is next to air. Like, mm-hmm. like those are the two most important things to you. Um, and her parent, her grandparents hide her away in the second floor of their like house. They are noble. They're a noble family. Um, but they are ashamed of this girl. She is throughout the book called the bastard daughter of the family. Um, so she is born of some kind of affair, but I've not figured out what happened here. Um, but sure. a couple of years into, living here and she's only been kept kind of in the attic away from everybody and not allowed to ever leave. Um, she gets word that an older brother she didn't know she had is coming to live with them. And this brother was born of her mother's first marriage and he is a pure blood noble. Um, and the family dotes on him, but he loves his half sister. And so whatever he wants, he gets. So like his first demand is that she's allowed to come into the house and oh, do whatever yeah. she maybe wants. You, maybe you didn't so, mention this because I remember so, that part. Because I yeah. have been enjoying this immensely. Um, and so like there's a scene where the sister falls ill with scarlet fever and the grandmother says they can't afford the treatment because the antibiotics are new and, and it's just so expensive. And he was like, have we become such a poor family that we can't afford the treatment for antibiotics? Because last I checked, we were a very noble and Royal family. So if like, we're in such, bitch? right. He's like, if we're in such dire <laughs> straits, then I'll just write my father's family and I'll get the money that we need. Like, I mean, he just, puts it all out there and so then grandmother him. is like no we've got it thanks like i just love it um so That's i'm finishing awesome. i'm finishing that up and then um i'm reading i think it's called accidental leader or accidental president it's on hold for me at the library i have to go pick it up tomorrow um it is The accidental, nope, that's not it. (laughs) Um, This is why I have a Goodreads list. Mm -hmm. So that I don't have to. Oh, I'm curious now what this actual title is called. accidental presidents eight men who changed america and it's about the um eight times that the vice president had to step up and become the president unexpectedly Mm -hmm. um, and how that changed the course of american history unexpectedly and so i'm really excited for this kind of deep dive into um history in a way that i haven't looked at it before nice yeah so so yay love all the books i oh and there's one i think so i i have a new audible credit i think i'm going to use it on this um it's called the three mothers um how the mothers of martin luther king jr malcolm x and james baldwin shaped a nation i have read part of that i've not finished it super good I've heard really, really good things. And I, it sounds like something, it sounds like the kind of book I want to, like, I like to listen to history and nonfiction uh-huh. books. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to be my fine pick. 
All right. Well, everyone at home, tell us what you're reading. Yes. Comment on our Instagram, send us an email, tweet it at us, mm-hmm. anything. We want to know. How um, do the people find us? Well, um, probably just buzz my find my iPhone app. It's still turned on on my iPad, but um, I mean, you won't, there's nothing to see here. Oh, you mean on social media? Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, I'm pretty lonely lately. So I was like, you can just come hang out. That's fine. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Can I Life's- for real? Cause like <clears throat> you can find us on Twitter at Life Sentence Pod, mm-hmm. on Instagram at Lifetime Sentence, on mm-hmm. Facebook at Facebook.com slash lifetime sentence, on TikTok at Lifetime Sentence. Mm-hmm. You can shoot us an email at podcast at lifetime sentence.com. Um and like a- the people who are still waiting for our settlement. Yeah. I don't know what so we settled for. <laughs> I went in and adjusted our spam filters and like for three days we got no spam and then they came back. So that was fruitless. Um, and then you can of course join us at patreon.com slash lifetime sentence. Um, Aaron just spilled all of the tea and yep. next week I am telling a true hometown story. Yeah. And if you are on Clubhouse, come find me on Clubhouse. I'm at the Duchess underscore. Um, I'm still trying to figure it out, but there's some true crime groups. I'm in a lot of bachelor groups, um, which is what I talked about this week on Patreon, patreon.com slash lifetime sentence. And so follow me like um, there's, I'm really digging Clubhouse. I don't know if anybody else is, but I'm finding it extremely cool like you can just pop into a group and just listen to people talk it's like kind of listening to the radio but it's just listening to a conversation which is awesome so oh and i want to put a call out to our listeners um so i have discord because i'm a gamer um but more i downloaded discord this week and then i got into clubhouse and i didn't even sign up more and more people are getting on discord that are not gamers listeners do you have discord is a discord server something i would be interested in where you could join the conversation with me and aaron because oh my god that'd be so fun right um and then we could do like a public discord and then also have patreon channels that are um that are exclusive and so i I I just want a way to connect with you I feel like we've gone back and forth on the Facebook issue and that's just not going to be it. It's not going to be something that we're going to want to maintain. Um, just watching other Facebook groups. It just implodes. Just crash and burn. Inside. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'd much rather do a discord channel. I know people that have done it. I know people like it. So if you're into that, like, let us know. Um, yeah. Otherwise let us know what other channel, like, I mean, I would love to get on clubhouse and just like open some rooms sometimes where we can all just get on and talk to each other or we could do maybe an Instagram live. I, I mean, let us know like what you would prefer. I mean, talk yeah. to us. Talk to me goose. So, yes. We appreciate every single one of we you. We want to interact with you more. It's just Facebook is a dumpster fire and I hate it. Uh, yes. If absolutely. I could tweet Facebook tomorrow and never go back. I would. 100%, but I do too much business through my art and music there. Same. Not my um, art and music, just business stuff. You know, you have a secret career where you mm. um, sing opera while painting masterworks. Oh, yeah. I'm actually just Taylor Jenkins Reid. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> oh, my God. I wish <sighs> I had the talent that she has in her pinky finger. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
All right. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us. Yes, we love reach you. Reach out to us. Let us know what you want. We're here for you. We are here for you. Um, don't forget to eat your vegetables. And as we learned in the snowpocalypse, it is so important. Charge your phone. Bye. Bye.